It's obvious that design is all around us, but how designers think through their work is often a mystery. Yet, understanding that process can fuel our own curiosity and creativity. Adam Fromey hosts Thinking Through Design as a series of in-depth discussions to reveal the designer's mindset and realize its value. Thank you, Jeff, for coming. I am, I've been very excited about this conversation. We've worked a lot together in different capacities. I first was your student um, in grad school, and then we've also gone on to teach classes together um, here in the Department of Design. So it is a delight to have you, to sit down and talk with you today. Um, and so I want to start our conversation by asking you about your classroom experience. And so I think a good place to start might just be to ask, what does your approach to teaching design look like? Yeah, that's a, I like the question. I like the, the idea of what it looks like because it creates kind of a, a broader scope of an explanation. Um, I came from the profession to academia rather than sort of from education to academia. And so running a group of designers or creatives in a workspace was, you know, sort of being a coach and a cheerleader often um, with some oversight um, mentoring. In the classroom, I try to bring a little bit of that sort of energy and casualness to creative thinking and exploration. Um, and, I, and I think some of that has to do with allowing the students, in this case, to really have some autonomy as to where and what they're doing or thinking. Um, so I try to create a classroom that looks like a place that is both interesting, exciting, approachable, um, so that conversations and individualism can find its way to the surface. Um, because I think as a designer, working in teams is the only way we can exist. And so from the beginning, thinking about how teamwork happens, how communication happens across both individuals, but across ideas, um, across approaches, sort of the diversity of conversation, I think is really critical. And so if I were to be too, let's say, regulated or kind of too traditional in my approach to way the classroom looks, then I think it would eliminate some of the opportunities for those things to happen. Yeah, I think the the pedigree from both of us is going from practice first into education. Yes. And I think one of the things that I see as similar in, in our approaches is it doesn't matter where the best idea comes from. And, and what I mean by that is leveling off that sort of professor versus students and instead what I see you doing well is standing with the students looking at the problem versus it being you standing on the opposite side of the classroom as the students yeah I think that that's a that's a thank you first of all <laughs> I think that's a great observation because it's hard for me at times to engage with a student until they've had their ideas begin to blossom. Uh, I came from an architectural, an, an architectural pedagogy where it was the faculty were probably fairly heavy-handed, and I think traditionally in architecture that was the case, and so. You learn from your mentor, professor, kind of by emulating and them telling you how to make the best move. Um, and I didn't, I, I never liked to swallow that pill very much, probably to um, 
full of myself in my younger days and, you know, thinking that I needed to have my idea, whatever that means, which is silly now when I think about it in my mature age old place. But the idea of being able to bend and mold with the student and with where their ideas are not just coming from, but where they're leading towards, is just a more exciting conversation for me because it means I'm constantly having to sort of morph myself into their thinking process so that I can engage in a better conversation with them about solving their problems, their issues regarding the topic at hand. Um, and that sort of companionship along the process is seems to be not just more enjoyable for me personally, but I think it also provides a, a better outcome of learning. Can you expand on that? Because I'm, I'm really curious to learn more about that conversation that happens, the interaction between students. You, you mentioned that you're, you sort of need them to come up with their idea first before having, being able to sort of work with them on it. Yeah, of course in a classroom, the syllabus is there. There are constraints that are part of a design project. Um, and those constraints certainly begin a conversation no matter what. So I do have some control over that, obviously. I think after that point, though, it's interesting to see where the first directions occur within each student's sort of place. And, and what that does for me is it begins to now become sort of a editing process rather than a manufacturing process. And I've always been more excited about a process that evolves to things that aren't quite understood yet than a process that is trying to lead to an idea that's already developed or seems to be understood. That editing process, I think my mind goes towards is the student doesn't just have to have the idea because the idea is going to be clunky at the beginning oftentimes. Yes. But they have to start making something that can be edited, that can be sort of developed because there's a relationship in design that happens between the physical making of something in connection to the thinking that happens while the making is occurring. Yeah, absolutely. That's part of the first stage for me is that an idea has to be manifested into something in order to be a conversation, whether it's manifested into a words, language, um, and be a, a, an oral conversation about an idea, um, or whether for us, the tools that we lean on as designers, whether it's drawing, media, physical making, or other kinds of things, this sort of representation or transformation from kind of an idea in your head into something tangible that can be communicated across to someone else is the first step of evaluation for me. And that's critical in beginning the path of process, reflection, you know, action, reprocessed, repeat, <laughs> Re repeat, yeah. repeat, rinse, wash, rinse, repeat, I think is, is a big part of that. But I, my frustration with students is never about what the first idea or how clunky it is. It's the students that can't get their ideas or are afraid to get their ideas out of their head into a materiality or a material quality that can be a conversation. And, and those are the things that I think are critical in design development is making or breaking into conversation as quickly as possible. And so many of the things that I love to work with with students are sort of innovative ways to quickly accelerate an idea into an activity or into an 
object, and I, I want to use that word carefully because it's not that it's always about making something physical that you can put on your desk and walk around, but just a conversation, just into words that have um, professional sort of language from what they've learned as to what you know the principles of design are and how they sort of navigate that oral space is as critical as how they might navigate bending some paper to create an architectural model or um, using a marker or pen on paper and beginning to sketch um, ideas that they might have using some of the principles of drawing that we or that they or that we all are, are understand or use in order to have a clarity or a consistency of what communication means. Yeah, getting ideas out of your head is difficult for most people. Yeah. Um, but especially in the classroom setting when there are some of these constraints, right? There, There's a sense of comparison with your classmates and uh, self-reflection of your own skill and ability yeah. and, and some of those sort of things are self-aware that people become self-aware when you're asking them to make something. And so I want to dive a little deeper into that. What, how do you foster that? What are, what are some of the strategies or techniques for people that, um, the students that you're talking about that are maybe a little hesitant? So I, I kind of coined a, uh, what are we going to, a title for a TED Talk I did some years ago that sort of emphasizes or at least describes a little bit about what that was. And the title of it was sort of aiming for the target instead of the bullseye. And so um, the idea is that I don't like to set up real specific parameters as to what both deliverables or what the process is within any project that I give students. And so I'm purposefully vague with some of these things. I know it drives them nuts. I know it probably drives me nuts through the process as well because everything is sort of moving and sliding all the time. And especially nowadays, students coming out of K through 12 programs that are really sort of lockstepped and test specific, um, flexibility really isn't part of the deliverables. They know exactly what they're supposed to do each day or they, at least they've learned how to do lists really well. They're always asking for when something is due because they're trying to manage their time, which is very valuable, obviously. And I'm a wrecking ball to that. Um, not trying to make them inefficient, but trying to get them to understand that the process of creative thinking, problem solving, ideation, whatever we want to call what we do as design, is a process of evolution, and it doesn't go in a straight line. Um, and the solution or the running to a solution often passes by all the opportunities to change the question to begin with and decide that where you were running for from running to from the beginning is actually the wrong place to run to. And so being able to understand how to follow a process of information gathering, idea sort of developing, and then conversation or um, uh, with yourself and with others as a way of analysis, these things are all part of a process that constantly changes direction as it moves. And so to, to get the students used to, or at least break their habits from before and get them to understand this better, um, the vagueness is purposefully in the schedule and in the, the um, deliverables in order for them to figure out what that is. Because each student's direction, process, deliverable and question might be different than the student that's sitting next to them working on the same complex problem. And they should be able to guide themselves slightly differently as well in order to be true to where they're being led 
or where they're leading themselves toward. What I liked wasn't about wasn't that like that sounded like a <laughs> that sounded like a, well, a labyrinth. <laughs> well, what, what I I liked about noting and and maybe giving detail to the students about the difference between the target and the bullseye is I often find when students do finally get up the courage to make something, they try and create the final version of it first. And, and we've all seen this. Yeah. Um, but what your explanation does is it, it does give permission to take that pressure off, that you don't have to hit a bullseye on the first try. But rather, it's more of that broad aiming. Just yeah, starting I, with the direction. Yeah, if, if you're in my class, you won't. Even if your first idea is one that's great, what happens is I'll write it down and I'll do something with it later. But I won't allow you to because the process is really where the learning is always, for myself included, even as I teach still, continue to teach classes that I've taught over and over again. The learning is in the process. And it's much more exciting to learn than to sort of um, succeed in my book. Um, and and it's always been where the excitement has been for me in so many things that I do um, on my own and that I ask my students to do are certainly understanding the professionalism of the final product, but to realize that that's just sort of an organized, that's just kind of cleaning up that step, knowing that this project might not go anywhere else but it's really just a step in learning. Um, mm -hmm. And that's, I think, really important and interesting at the same time. You, you mentioned that sort of open-endedness, and, and it's certainly something I've noticed working with you. With how you frame projects, I know students find this frustrating because I've seen it firsthand uh, of trying to, they don't know where to go. They don't know what you're wanting from them because they're focused on, trying to make something or, or sort of appease you as the instructor of, of what is he asking for. So what advantage do you see to this approach? You've, you've touched on it a little bit, but I want you to dive a little deeper in that. And then the follow-up is how do you overcome that frustration um, when you're guiding students through this process? So let's do this, Adam. <laughs> let's go to where some of these conversations are beginning. It's like a funnel, and these yeah. are sort of heading to a place that let's jump to the place because I think at this point it has a potential explanation, which is the studio that you are in with me. Um, and so it was a graduate studio. I'll lay out the framework. You add the color to the commentary as you feel fit because you were you were on the other side of the table from this at the time so it was a graduate studio and um i was really interested in looking at the city of columbus and how we can fix some of its transportation woes and issues for probably the 50th time in the last 50 years there was something that came through the dispatch that said um you know fast speed rail from Cincinnati, Columbus and Cleveland, you know, gets money or something and there's and it kind of hits the conversation again about the city. How do we get people from driving cars individually and get ourselves into a more speed train like a lot of other places in the world and fix ourselves? And so I thought, well, no better place than to put a bunch of grad students that are in all kinds of design fields except city planning, uh, except mobility, except that, but put their heads and design thinking into the problem and see what we come up with. And so that's where the class started with a semester and a small handful of grad students to look at this problem. I think it was around week four, right? Yes. So... <laughs> We're developing these ideas of what a rail might look like. We're looking at all around the world at different places that have introduced either high-speed rail or at least introduced mass transit transportation systems that tried to alleviate transportation woes within 
the urban context. And we were looking and studying the city of Columbus and downtown and thinking about how we can fix some of these problems. We could save CODA from itself. All of these things that we that I asked everyone to promise to do. And I left for a conference overseas um, and came back five days later or a week later probably. And uh, the pirates were wanting to um, wanting to create mutiny and they wanted to take down the the captain of the ship and make him walk the plank and yeah, tell and me what what that what transpired what that transpired week. that week while I was gone because it when we finally get to the end of this story <laughs> you'll you'll realize sort of how this bullseye rather than target aiming um, is so powerful yeah this this was several years ago so my my wounds have healed from it but no <laughs> um i what i recall most most specifically about that is the mantra that you are sort of giving us is we have to remove cars from columbus and that i think a lot of the students in the course were seeing that as the problem we were trying to solve rather than sort of as we're talking now about sort of that's the direction we're, we're trying to move in. And I remember that week we had large rollouts, table size rollouts of the city of Columbus and people were using Sharpies and trying to redraw over the city grid and not, and sort of feeling that frustration of we're locked into an existing system um, and it felt insurmountable to change that specifically towards removing cars from Columbus. And several of the students pinned a, a letter to you saying that it can't be done. Yeah. Um, and, and that we're frustrated with this process because it feels like there's nowhere next to go. And, and looking back now, I, I think that frustration was, was a fantastic moment, as, uh, especially for this conversation it really allowed us, we didn't realize it, but we had so much knowledge towards the problem because we had all of the excuses lined up as to why we couldn't move cars from Columbus. We just ha weren't at the time able to sort of flip the switch, right? Uh, of realizing that we, in process of going after this one itch that you gave us, we had this wealth of knowledge about it, but we're still trying to fit it this sort of round peg through a square hole and, and the frustration was there. So I, yes. And the cl first class that I came back to was the class after reading this letter and, and everyone saying this problem is, I don't want to, I don't think it said unsolvable, but we're questioning the course direction. Yes. And it was really about, this course in this direction. So it was really calling a lot on me to reevaluate why I was wanting all of you to look into this problem to begin with. And so I remember the class and everyone sort of had a moment of time to give sort of their 50 cents, because it was way more than 10, <laughs> <laughs> on why this was becoming so frustrating and what were we going to do about it? And, and that, you know, in a sense, I was leading everyone off of a cliff um, with this. And through the, all those conversations, there became a larger question that showed up regarding the why. And the why was removing cars from Columbus was going to make it a healthier place for people to live a healthier environment um, as far as pollution, environmentalism, uh, I mean, not environmentalism, pollution and other kinds of things that we hear about all the time. So it was trying to get at that, but it was just using one nail and everyone was swinging <laughs> hammers. Yeah. So what we ended up doing is taking that topic, what does a healthy city look like? the gripes that were part of what you learned and how they weren't fitting in well, 
and move the entire needle away from taking care of vehicles and having them as only a subset of the larger problem of what does a healthy city feel like, especially understanding at the time and even still currently Columbus's sort of growth process, which is still kind of from an urban environment somewhat young, not as young as it was eight years ago. Was this eight years ago? Something least, like that, yeah. maybe more. Um, but that just changed everything. And we worked so efficiently for the last 10 weeks of the class um, and really came up with an amazing solution that turned into an installation, uh, a public installation that identified um, 50 ideas or 50 solutions towards a healthy city. I've taken that beginning from your class and continued to use it in undergraduate curriculum for a collaborative class that you were part of a year ago. Um, and now we're uh, real close to publishing a book that's, that reflects, <clears throat> excuse me, all these ideas around that. Um, and, and the growth of that wouldn't have happened without that mutiny. If we <laughs> would have solved in some far out, you know, sci-fi way or of removing, way of just yeah, looking at or, one specific you know, sky trains or dig holes through the city to create a subway or just even, you know, create, you know, a code of bus system that is, you know, 10 times more complex than it ever physically could be, especially with the money that it has. Um, we would have really failed at the, at the issue. I, I love talking about this project just because there are so many really cool details in it. And for me now, looking back on that and in, in the different ways that we've sort of talked about this, one of the most glaringly glaring issues that I find humor in, as somebody that came from practice, I'd been a designer. We had a lot of really smart people in the room. And yet that flip from looking at thinking about removing cars to making a healthy city is so obvious in hindsight. Yeah. It, it checks all the boxes for what we do as designers. We reframe the problem. We look at the people experience, healthy versus the product, the car. So looking at that, we're, we flip it to the motivational. Instead of taking something away, what can we give the city? All of those are strategies that are very apparent and very well known to designers. Yet in the moment, we had such blinders on to doing the task set before us that the group think still kept us from using what was most familiar to us as designers and, and being able to sort of work our way out of the box. Um, and, and so I think that's really interesting. I think probably on a class level that doesn't happen with every class, but on an individual level, students regularly experience that where they sort of work themselves deeper into the box um, because they, get, they, they forget their knowledge, they forget their skills because they see a carrot in front of them. They, they see a potential um, and they go after that. Do you, is that something you experience? Or, yeah, or? I, I think that for me, that's what I try to create in every class is these opportunities. Certainly not of mutiny. I wouldn't be here if that <laughs> happened every single class. Your there'd SEI be, scores. There'd would be, be enough <laughs> complaints and SEI scores that I would, I would never, I would never be allowed to do what I do. Um, but I certainly think there are lots of moments where the students see me change and rethink ideas because of them. So they have a certain authorship to, or certainly as it begins to happen, feel that they have an authorship to direct what some of these issues are. Now, it can lead to a lot of problems. Um, you know, at the end of the day, as democratic as you want to make education it's not i am still in control of the classroom i am the dictator in that room 
and, you know, in a sense, hold the grades and identify the kinds of things that are happening in it. So I certainly am involved in making sure the container has the certain things that it needs to. But I love for the flow of the kinds of things that happen inside of that container to not always be one directional. Yeah. And that's really important for me and it allows me to not only make changes where I believe they're appropriate and rethink about the structure of what learning is within the dynamic group of the students, but allow students to understand that learning is also not just dynamic, but it comes from a diversity of viewpoints and that trying to make sure that they're all there and that they all have the opportunity to sort of move the conversation one way or another without losing sight in a sense of the target, but definitely not knowing where the bullseye is on it is just part of that process that I really enjoy um, sort of introducing and kind of maintaining within my classroom. Yeah, it's only once you have that sort of target in front of you that you can identify where the bullet bullseye is on right. the target. And yeah. so you really have to sort of take that first step of just sort of figuring out where the edges of it are, or, or maybe in a different terms, it's a difference between understanding what the goal is versus the solution, yeah. right? And how those Absolutely. are different. You, you talked about your experience in industry. And, and I see there could be a disconnect between sort of how you're talking about your expectations for students being open-ended and, and wanting them to figure it out versus what might happen in the workplace where you have a client that has a need um, and it might feel more straightforward of make this for me or, or do this for me or design this. And, and I'm curious about what did you learn in industry that influenced how you teach design this way? So I think in industry as a designer, what was always exciting for me was that every client had a different approach to things. And so I had to sort of relearn my craft through every client. Um, they were the experts in what they did um, but I was an expert in what I did, and somewhere in between those two things, there needed to be this sort of perfect marriage. And, and those were always really interesting places to be because I needed to be both a student and a teacher. I needed to learn from what and how my clients think, what their business was, what the industry was around whatever that client did, what the expectations were of either the visitors to that client or the employees of that client or product that that client produces, whatever that might be. And I had to learn what that was in order to feel confident in making good decisions. But then I also had to teach the client how to understand the language that I speak in around design. And that was always something that was so interesting to me and really led me to the kinds of research that I play around with um, here at the university as an academic. And those things had to do with the tools that as an architect, as an interior designer, as a designer, as an artist, we use to communicate ideas. And so I would roll a set of drawings in front of a client, and to me, I could visualize the space, the materials, the surfaces, just by understanding the notes, the dimensions, the lines, the the pochet or the places that are colored in versus the other ones that are not, the organization of those documents. They have rules and regulations and guidelines to them that once you understand them really well, you actually see them in the same way that if you were to read a novel right now, you would see the story unfold in your head. You would know what the character feels like, smells like, what they see, what kind of environment they're in. 
you know, as we begin to read from really great authors, it's really easy to get interesting images within our head of what it is that we're reading. It's kind of the excitement, right, of reading novels and things like this. I see those things when I look at these drawings, but my clients just see a lot of really weird lines on a piece of paper that just look like, you know, a foreign language to them. And so it's critical that I try to explain to them in ways that they might understand what that actually means and what the results of those lines will actually mean once they throw money at the problem and we get somebody constructing it. And so I've always tried to explore, even when I was at and working in the industry, innovative ways to make that communication happen. And so I would make little models out of different materials. I had a jewelry studio and I loved at the time to make jewelry and other kinds of things just as a person that loves to craft and make stuff. I was a sculptor for a while. So I really enjoy those kinds of hands-on skills and I teach a lot to myself while I manipulate materials to make things. Obviously, architectural models were always enjoyable in school, and we don't use them very much in, in, in industry anymore, but they are very telling, and they're great ways to sort of explore ideas. Um, if you do them fast and efficient, I'm not talking about the really high-end models. I'm talking about pieces of paper that are ripped and glued and sometimes kind of licked and sticked. So they're, they're sloppy, but they, but they have a quality of conversation within them, sometimes to myself, or crafted slightly better to the client themselves. Um, but I would provide these to the clients during meetings as a way to move our eyes off of these drawings, plans and elevations and sort of abstract lines to things that were a little bit more tangible in order for them to understand the three-dimensional quality or the complexity of how a design actually works from an idea and an architect to a contractor to construction and to an experience. And these were always really fun, not just for me because it allowed me to have different types of conversation with my ideas because of working them in different ways or representing them differently, but it also opened up different conversations with the client who saw things differently when they began being asked to look at an idea through a different type of a conversation or yeah. communicate an idea through a different conversation. So Ron Pizzuti, who many of us know, I came to him with a design for one of his main offices year. This is going to be so many years ago, I'm not even going to put a time frame on it because then you'll start to know how really old I am. But um, I, I had an idea for a particular reception desk that used copper and some other metals because I was making jewelry and some of the details and some of the, the artistry that was part of making those pieces really began to resonate with me with some of the things that Ron Pizzuti was working with and certainly his renowned art collection that he has now always an art collector. So when we would have conversations and he would talk about what he was wanting to have happen within his space, um, these conversations about sort of material detail as art collection just was really inspiring. And so, you know, I felt it was something that I needed to just explore in other mediums in order to get ideas. And so it was really fun sort of coming up with concepts of, uh, of a reception desk at the time, but also the whole area that, that was part of the, um, the lobby and some of the adjacent main offices around the lobby. And, um, so part of it started with making it that way. And the other thing was I, at the time, had a daughter who was four, six maybe. I'm trying to even remember what age. But when I would bring drawings home to work on on the dining room table, um, I would be redlining architectural drawings on one side and then the back side of the page, which was over at the other side of the table, if you can imagine a large sheet with the sheet over the top, she would have her box of 64 Crayola crayons with a sharpener in the back, and she would be drawing all over that other side. And so we drew together. While I was redlining, I started drawing with her on the other side and started coming up with these ideas. 
because I was playing with crayons. And when you draw with crayons, you bring back all kinds of memories of being a kid playing. And so <clears throat> your creativity sort of opens up a Pandora's box. Yeah, it's like a lightning rod. Oh, I got all these ideas. I just started drawing. So I drew a whole bunch of these things on a sheet of back of a, another project on crayons. And I brought that into the meeting the next day. <clears throat> it was probably the least professional set of drawings that you could provide to somebody. But they were there, and they started conversations that really led to some of the designs that got implemented. But they changed <clears throat> the conversation. Um, and so those were the things I was doing in industry, trying to just allow the conversation to adjust and change by ways of introducing elements that were either unfamiliar or unstructured so that ideas could flow more easily because they weren't trying to be contained in maybe what traditional structure of conversation might be. Yeah. And those are what I brought to the classroom. My mind goes three directions in listening to that story. One is how important it is for, for the designer to have that openness that, that the information is flowing between all of the people that are on the team and really it's needing that curiosity to learn what's important mm -hmm. about them and, and that just disposition of openness. That's one thing I, I, I see as, as being critical. The other thing, you're talking a lot about this idea of needing this visual language as a way to communicate ideas, right? And that gets back to this idea of early making that mm -hmm. we, we talked about at the beginning of the conversation. It is so critical the making happens, partly because it allows us to sit with the problem longer and to sort of learn more about it, right? The process of, of going from redlining to crayons, mm -hmm. the process of just creating something allows you to have that introspection and decision-making, but it also gives the other people in the room a chance to react to something and their reaction is going to be much more substantive when they can see it versus a conversation where I can be describing something and you're in the moment someone sneezes and whereas when you have something physical in the room that you're looking at whether it's a illustration or if it's more of just an expression of an idea or an experience there's this sense of time that you can consider that you can look at and react to and respond to or at, continue to ask questions while you're looking at it that I see is really important in the design process and, and maybe parallels both that sort of experience or the story that you're sharing as well as what can happen in the classroom. Yeah, there were a lot of decisions that were changed, altered, or even validated when I was in the profession by m m what I'll call moment models. It wasn't necessarily a model of an entire space or anything like that. It was about just ideas that were maybe new, abstract, or had certain complexities to them that you wanted to try to introduce to a client to see sort of how it would shake and whether other parts of the question could be answered through that type of reaction or that type of development. And those were, I used them all the time. Um, it was really something that I enjoyed. It was how I, it was part of my mental process as well, is to explore ideas through multiple mediums. It was something that I learned in graduate school um, that I continue to use in the profession that, that also, you know, leads me into the way I try to teach as well in the classroom. That even though we don't use models very much anymore, I'm certainly not advocating that we all start making giant models again. They are very time consuming, but there's a couple things that happen when you make models that are representing an idea or a particular element or a design feature or something like that, at least as, as the, in the profession that I'm in where it's both 
sort of creates a diversity of thinking for you as the designer. So it's a creative process. And so every time you touch a different material, it demands a different sort of approach or to it in order to manipulate that material, whether it's pushing crayons around on paper or soldering copper and firing it, right, to get a color or surface. The other component of it is, and you touched on it, which I think is really important, it's very meditative. So it really allows you to remove the kinds of things that are often in the way of good decision-making, which is all the other elements of a project, <laughs> such as time, money, you know, effort, all these other things, all the stresses of today. It's always a place for me personally when I'm making that, um, that it's actually like meditation. It removes me from now and allows me to have a different type of a focus. And that focus is usually calming, it's exciting, um, it definitely is time-consuming, but it's healthy. And, and to me, it's how I meditate, is to just sort of think sideways in these ways, using materials or drawing differently or exploring different ways of making as a way to think, be curious, and to, and to evaluate decisions. I think something that we don't talk a lot about in design is needing that sense of mindfulness. Um, I like the word meditation. I, I think of it as mindfulness to where it's just giving your chance to an opportunity just to pause and be with, with the problem, whether that's through physical making or, or consideration, but just having this mindfulness to where you can actually observe what's going on. And I think that's an important part of making is you're not just sort of like speeding through model making. Um, while we want to make models quick, we want to make them quick so that way we have time to consider and time to sort of be with it yeah. to allow insight to be revealed. One of the challenges right now is the change in technology, um, especially when we're trying to sort of emphasize this learning by making has in technology impacted how you teach? Has there been a difference in how you see students approaching their work? Yeah, uh, yes, <laughs> is the answer to that question. <laughs> sure. um, so there are a number of things that technology does and has done and will continue to do regarding the effect on, on learning and students. So we can probably go down a couple of paths. One is a, a path of loathing, and the other one is a path <laughs> of absolute um, cheering and, and, yeah. and, and celebration. And, and celebration. <laughs> exactly. So um, from the standpoint of loathing, the computer screen actually shrunk our drawing space down when it comes to architectural drawings. And we have, a, we have an issue with scale to begin with. We are drawing on you know a 24 inch by 36 inch, maybe 30 by 40 inch sheet of paper that is sort of the result of our documentation that goes to a job site for contractors to make the architecture. Those things are often at a scale that we use, which is, let's say, one-eighth of an inch equals a foot, maybe one-quarter of an inch equals a foot for a smaller project, you know. And so the issue that's so interesting about that is we're actually drawing our ideas at like one-six-hundredth of the scale of it actually being built. And so not just that, but it's two-dimensional. It's on a piece of paper. So the difference between the ideas that we have, the decisions around those ideas that we're making, and the way that we represent those ideas, and the actual scale of the finished product is so large 
that it's impossible to actually do that with real clarity. And it's why everyone sees projects that say this project was $2 million over budget. This project was over budget of this. It's not necessarily because people did a bad job. It's because you just, the complexity of this process is really profound. And it gets done every day, so it's not like it's impossible. It got done you know, thousands of years ago as well. But when you're talking about students learning how to understand something at that scale two-dimensionally versus the real scale of moving around inside of an environment, having the experience of a three-dimensional space that surrounds you, you can also see where the information sort of learning gap is as well. So this becomes a big part of the kinds of things that we have to sort of manage um, and figure out how to create a learning curve that is um, appropriate and successful for someone to kind of navigate through as they go from, you know, student to professional. Yeah, it's a, a specific skill that needs to be learned within the project yeah. making itself. Of and I think that translation. Yeah. And I think that's why model making still is really valuable. Not, again, not the three week long fine tuned model that looks like it was like it's the building itself, but it is there to help us understand what that is. So technologically, it's doing some things that are both helping and hurting. Our conventional drawings are getting smaller because they're on the size of a screen, even though we can kind of enlarge and whatnot, but the con continuity of being able to sort of see the entire sheet of drawing at one time and move through it is a little bit more cumbersome, and so that becomes a little bit difficult. So students have a tendency in particular to kind of learn this software and focus on what's on the screen at that moment, and they forget that the rest of the screen has got all the rest of this project that still isn't being taken care of, even though it's affected by the kinds of things you're doing here. On the flip side of that, the visualization of this project is actually becoming much more powerful through the um, technology. So you're able to create three-dimensional digital models that you can move through quite easily to start giving you some of what this experience is or at least begin to play with that. I think that's sort of that celebration side and it's the management of those sides. Once you understand sort of the language and you can read drawings like you would read a novel and have the image sort of appear in your head of where you are, then I think the power of the visualization with technology becomes super appropriate. When you're trying to learn the difference between those two things is when keeping it on a screen rather than physically sort of making it so you can get your eyes down and sculpt and see what the three-dimensional geometries are as pieces, parts collide and spaces that are void the spaces that we actually design and the container, the architecture that we put around them and how those two relate and create a companionship with themselves. Those are the things that are much more difficult, I think, at times to do in, uh, you know, while you're learning um, if you stay just inside the technology. Now, I sketch on an iPad all the time, so my hand skills are finally back in play again, whereas for many, many years, you just sort of had a mouse and a keystroke. Um, so those kinds of ways that the technology is improving, it does allow us to sort of regain and rediscover some of those more traditional skill sets that are still really great for thinking and ideating and communicating your types of decisions to yourself or to someone else as you sketch and draw. 
Um, and because they're digital, they have a lot more opportunities to be used in different ways across technological technology platforms. Those things are fantastic. And mm -hmm. now even having them translate into 3D modeling and other kinds of laser cutters and other ways of making, they also are allowing us to certainly create more complexity, um, think about more complexity, use technology to help us navigate that complexity and then actually make mock-up or prototype that um, that complexity. I think those things are just fantastic. And I'm just staying inside the profession. I'm not really even talking about sort of VR, game design, um, and, and AI, which are also just amazing opportunities for creating different types of efficiencies of communication. Mm -hmm. um, and again, the diversity of communication is where we started this conversation. And so uh, it's, you know, I'm a fan of any way, place, or shape that drops itself into the, to the kind of the, the equation. I see an importance of really being able to let students know where they are in the process, to know how to use the tool in the right way, whether they're sort of in that initial phase of, of looking where to aim, if they have that sense of target, or if they have that sense of bullseye. And, and there's an opportunity for all these different technologies, all these different skill sets that we've been talking about. But you really start to use them differently, think about them differently in these different moments. Yeah, I, I would agree. And I think those are the things that are exciting. Again, if I look at these technologies, as I think all of us should, as just tools, then with any tool that we've ever had from the first sort of stone hammer, you know, it has an opportunity to be used the way it was designated. But then we found a lot of other really interesting uses for it that changed the way we thought about other things. Um, and, and I think this is the same kind of a thing. And I guess, you know, I had mentioned before, but I've given some talks to some high school students about AI and the, everyone's sort of afraid of it. Now I know that, that it has lots of issues that need to be understood, but wow, it's a fantastic tool to do your, some of your, um, investigation with. It's all like every other tool, every other way that you ever used, investigated to get in inspired, to get organized, to gain or gather research. If you don't do some due diligence with some of your editing, you can end up in the same place where your first AI search might take you with this, which is probably an interesting crafted document with a lot of fake news embedded in it. Mm -hmm. um, but as a way to expand the diversity of um, a conversation, it can do that really quickly. And you can be in charge of the types of prompts that you want these this different diverse selection of conversation to be. And then you can evaluate the differences the similarities and the, and the insight that comes from looking across this diverse set of, we'll say, moments, right? Yeah, the, the diversity for me of, of this, this idea of diversity really helps us in the perspective of just looking for this creative connections. That, that moment where we can t connect two things that are seemingly unrelated, right? Um, and that goes towards sort of what you're talking about with that meditative state of being relaxed, being comfortable, right? Lowering the heart rate versus yeah. the sort of like pressure to deliver and everything yeah. else uh, of really just being able to have that sense of perspective on the, on the project and, and find those connections and the more we can contribute, right? We, we can expand the horizon so we can see more before we decide where we're aiming at. Yeah. 
Exactly. My my students create a presentation where they have to record it and like what we're doing here and talk about the deliverables that they've created for a project and it has to be inside of about three minutes. And so they come to me and it's four minutes long, five minutes long because they've rambled. Um, I've asked them to make sure that they use the proper terminology that describes the principles. This is first year or, or second year students after foundations. And they're, they're frustrated at me because I'm saying, no, you need, to, you need to edit this. And they go, oh my gosh, it takes so much time. And I said, no, it doesn't. You've already got the script. Have AI shrink it. Mm-hmm. You decide how many words you want it to be. Put the entire 800, 900, 1,000 words into it and have it reduce it to 700 and then read that on your phone and see how long that takes and just use it to help you. It's, they aren't, they're rewriting what you've already written. It's, they aren't giving you an idea or anything like that. They're just helping you restructure because my students aren't necessarily gifted at writing. They're gifted at doing a lot of other skills and this is a presentation about what those skills are and they're crafting what their messages are. And so all the tools to me are available to them to help them understand how to use those tools, whatever they are, in any way that they can. Yeah, and that's to me more important and to me that's learning as well. You'll find out whether it is providing you what you want or not as long as you make sure that you read over it and you think thoroughly about whether that's the message that's telling the story the way you want it to be told. Yeah, just acknowledging that they are tools. They're tools. And then being able to compare and contrast different tools, what their strengths and weaknesses are, so that way you can make that that selection and, and be critical about what you're producing with it. Um, with this conversation, we're running towards the end of our time. But I want to give you an opportunity because we've talked about a lot of different things. And I, I think it's been really interesting from this early in our conversation, sort of this need for, for making to happen throughout the process of allowing understanding to emerge within the making, whether it's sort of less defined than maybe what people are comfortable with and, and trying to as a work towards a solution and then using technology to sort of facilitate this and, uh, and thinking of technology as more tools in the tool bag uh, of how we can expand um, the making to include new ways of making and, and to have this larger set of tools in front of us to facilitate this all towards this idea of, of coming to a satisfying solution and resolution with all of these thoughts, what is one step people can take today to start thinking through design? Uh, Well, that's certainly a good question. I think for me and people that have been around me, students that have had me know that there is one thing that I always ask of a designer, and I think it's of anybody, but I'll certainly I'm going to be more of an expert on what designers should know than maybe what others might, is I think you just need to be curious. Just having curiosity just pulls you down all kinds of rabbit holes, finds yourself being interested in things that you never thought you would be interested in, because you were curious to just try to know about something more than you did the day before or a topic that you had nothing to do about. It was in the industry, it was really important to do that as a designer in the profession. And it was because, you know, I had clients who were, you know, for, for scientific labs, I had to learn about what the lab process that they were going through. I had to learn about stem cell development. I had to learn about all kinds of things depending on who my client was. If it was a restaurant, I had to learn how a restaurant works 
where's the money coming from? How does the kitchen work versus the front of the restaurant work? What are all these things? Every project, every client was completely different. And so I had to be curious about how they did their work, what their profession was like, what are the nuances of who they are, what they are, and why they are. And that curiosity just was always so interesting to me within this um, discipline because it just, there was just never a boring moment ever, you know, ever. And so it's the thing that I really enjoy about not just design, but what design has given me as well is just to continue to feed my curiosity about things and this desire to, to understand or inquire about all kinds of stuff in order to just learn and be insightful and to think differently maybe than I did the day before about something. Um, I think that's just really the one thing that, that is just so powerful and can be so powerful if you kind of begin to lean into it. Curiosity is so critical. And I think one thing that people forget to do, especially in the frame of a project, the format of a project, is giving themselves permission to be curious. Yeah. Even if it's just curious for five minutes, curious for 10 minutes. It can be in small controlled windows, but giving yourself permission to be curious is absolutely um, great advice. Yeah, billable time makes that a little bit difficult, but we don't really do that anymore, do we? I think we work on a different level of after COVID about what work means. It's just yes. getting to the it's getting to the target faster. Yes. Well, I want to thank you um, for for joining me. I also want to thank our listeners. I appreciate your attention, and I hope this episode has provided you with something to consider. I am your host, Adam Fromey, and this has been Thinking Through Design. Thinking Through Design is produced by Adam Fromey and recorded in sunny Columbus, Ohio at the College of Arts and Sciences Digital Media Studio in Haggerty Hall on the campus of The Ohio State University. Music is Relax Part One by the distinguished Paul Nini. I'm Ava Dale.